Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word to us. It is here where you teach us. And as I preach in my weakness, I need your help. We need your help to hear. That we would hear what you are saying to us today. That by your Holy Spirit, you would take your spirit-breathed word, speak to us, show us what it means that we are saved to suffer and how to do that in Jesus' name. We ask, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as you heard that passage being read earlier by Ryan, as Rory was praying for the persecuted church around the world, and as we consider ourselves in the western part of the world here in Australia, we've seen in the book of Acts in this series before what it means to face peer pressure, what it means to face persecution. There is a slight difference, but it comes under that same banner of opposition to the gospel, opposition to Jesus. And for you and I who are Christians, and I'm speaking, of course, firstly to Reforming Church, if you are checking out Christianity online and you've landed here, it's so good you're here. We're so glad you get to check out Christianity with us. And what you're getting to check out is what we keep looking into, what it means that we signed up to be saved by Jesus, but also to suffer like Jesus. You see, I think if Christianity was kind of like given a marketing campaign, if, if we enlisted the help of the Gruen Transfer or someone like that to say, could you come up with an ad for Christianity? It's not like you would probably see an ad like this. Come to suffer. Come to be publicly shamed online, on the internet, with your friends and family. Come to be a Christian. You see, I don't think you really, for most, for the most part, most Christians like myself, we don't think in the forefront of our minds, when I became a Christian, when others became a Christian in our church, we don't think, yes, I, I'm going to suffer. I'm looking forward to signing up to suffer for this. Yet it is in the back of our minds that we will that somehow we're going to have some sort of loss, some sort of perhaps public shame, some sort of feeling of disgrace, dishonor. We're going to suffer for the sake of Jesus' name. And that is what we see in Acts chapter 5. In Acts 5 here, we come to an episode where things are really heating up for the church. Things are really heating up for those first followers of Jesus, those disciples. The apostles, the leaders, those sent ones from Jesus, those particular chosen leaders by Jesus, as they lead the church, things heat up so much that whilst we saw in the last episode last week, things were great. There was great power. In fact, the word great was used in our English Bibles, our translations, but the word, the Greek word is actually where we get the word mega from. So we saw this mega power, mega grace, and mega fear, this reverent fear come upon the church and all those watching so much so that the church wasn't standing out because it was just really good at social justice, although it does do social justice. The church wasn't standing out because it does really great marketing, although it's got a great message. The church wasn't standing out because it's got really good-looking people on a stage, although I'd argue, hang on a minute, yeah, <laughs> no, no, we don't stand out for those reasons. We, we actually see the church stands out in the book of Acts, it gets attention because the power of God is doing something. Jesus, and this is what the book of Acts is about, 
Jesus. It's the acts of Jesus. Jesus acting by his spirit through his apostles in this series, in this book. And that is starting to get the attention of the opposition. Not an opposition political party or an opposition on a playing field, but those who are opposed particularly to Jesus, the religious rulers of the time, those who hate Jesus, those who effectively and functionally hate God. They want the gospel gone. They want the gospel gone and they, they, they do anything they can to see the gospel hindered. We've named this series, we've titled this series in, in the book of Acts as we go throughout term two, The Unhindered Gospel. And they want to do everything they can to kill the gospel, see it dead and buried and hindered in every way. And as they try, things heat up for those who want to identify with the gospel. And here's the question for them and the question for us. How will we respond to pressure in Jesus' name? How are you and I going to respond to pressure in Jesus' name? Now, for us in the West, in Australia, we've always thought that is for the persecuted church over there. We will pray for them, but we've never really thought about pressure for us until recent times where we've seen not so much persecution. I'd argue it's not really a physical persecution, but it is a social pressure, a peer pressure, which we've seen already in the book of Acts. And here it comes again, except this episode we see there is a bit of physical persecution. We'll see later in the book of Acts, not far later, it gets really bad. Someone dies for the sake of Jesus' name. But here, pressure leads to some persecution. In fact, I've just entitled this, this sermon three things. We see three things. We see pressure, then we see uh, politics, And then we see persecution. We see pressure in verses 17 to 31. In the previous episode, Luke accounts for us. uh, The acts of Jesus are happening there. And this causes, we see in chapter 5, verse 17, straight off the bat, this is what's happening. We see that the church attracts so much attention for what they're doing, preaching in Jesus' name, that the high priest, chapter 5, verse 17, he rises up and all those who are with him, And then it's the party of the Sadducees, and they're filled with jealousy. Jealousy is a terrible sin. It's not just terrible because it means people get jealous of others and then they inflict pain on them in some way or form by words or sticks and stones. But worse than that, jealousy is terrible for the beholder of jealousy, isn't it? Like jealousy eats your heart. It's it's like... um, I don't watch those alien movies. I don't like. I don't like actually any form of horror or scary movie. It's just not me. Maybe I'm some sort of a, you know, a wimp. But um, you know, it's it's like those movies where you see that kind of the, the creature gets inside and eats you from the inside, right? That's that's jealousy. It's kind of thumping out of your chest and it's wanting to expose itself in lots of ways. But jealousy will eat you inside out. It, it'll actually attack your heart. And we see this jealousy has caused these religious rulers to be in a fit of rage and they aim their rage at the apostles they put the apostles in public prison why does it say public prison i mean there's all sorts of reasons for that there could be different types of prison i think the point is this ultimately everyone can see you act like this we're the boss we're going to publicly shame you we're going to put you in prison And prison is a hard place, but going there because of Jesus? They put them in prison. 
to contain the gospel and shame the followers of the gospel. But we see what happens. An angel comes, and uh, we see in the book of Acts, angels often do. They come to prison and open doors. It's like they've got a whole kind of company, the angel prisoning door opening company, and they come, and, um, and the angel opening the prison door is not the main action, I want you to notice. In fact, it's, it's harder to see in our translation. The main action is not so much the angel opening the door and releasing them. The main action is the command from the angel. So the word angel, angelos, means messenger. The angel has come not so much primarily to open the door, though he does. He's come with a message from God, and the message is this, go and speak about Jesus all the more. And that's what they do. They end up in the temple speaking about Jesus again. So that when they come to look for these apostles to bring them before the court, they can't find them because they've, well, escaped. They're gone. And so they're arrested again and brought in for questioning in verse 27. And look at Peter's answer to their questioning. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. We're going to obey God on this one rather than you, authorities. I reckon, in my humble opinion, no one wants to become a Christian just to suffer. Like you don't sign up to be Christian. You don't say, I want to become a Christian so I can suffer. We become Christians, we repent of our sin, we turn from our sin and turn to trust in Jesus who saves us from our sin to be saved. But we know, if we know the one we follow, Jesus, we know we don't just trust in Jesus as Saviour, we follow Him as Lord, and we follow Him as Lord means we'll suffer if He's our Lord. And we need that reminder again and again from the Bible. We need that reminder again that Peter actually spells out in his short sermon here, in his answer, his defence, he says this, Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. That's a pretty pointed sermon application there, isn't it? Verse 31, God exalted him at his right hand. And notice this, look at the names Peter uses of Jesus. God exalted him, verse 31, as leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins, and we're witnesses of these things. You see this? What is, Jesus, what, is, what is Peter saying? He's saying this. We want to obey God. And who is God? Jesus is God. And what do we know about Jesus? Well, you know that you killed Jesus. Jesus is God, by the way. He is leader. He is saviour. In other words, we're not scared to suffer because we follow the God who suffered. Like we follow Jesus who suffered. You think we're afraid of suffering? You think that we don't know what suffering looks like? We were there. We saw it. We follow him who suffered. We know the God who suffered. Now, to a lot of religions around the world, to a lot of worldviews, that's an abhorrent thought that God would actually enter our world and suffer. But that is why Christianity is so different to other world religions. Lots of people say today it's fashionable, isn't it? It's almost, it's almost said to kind of say that you know, all religions are the same. That's said to put Christianity in the same basket. And you know what? Here's a temptation for you and I, church. Here's a temptation for Christians is to hear that. Yes, all religions are the same. Christianity is just the same. Same God. And we all go, yeah, yeah, it's all the same. Why do we do that? 
because you don't want to suffer the shame of saying, no, 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 Christianity is not the same. We are afraid of saying Jesus is the only God and Saviour. There's no other name. We're afraid of that. We're afraid of the kind of the vitriol and the, the, the effect of that has on people, the outrage culture we live in. But when you look at Jesus, when you see what he says about himself, you hear him, you actually listen to Jesus. Any preacher who says, oh, Jesus is, is just a guru and you know all religions are the same and there's no such thing as hell, you've not listened to Jesus at all. You're not preaching Jesus. You're preaching yourself and you should get off that pulpit. But if you listen to Jesus and Peter listened to Jesus, Peter was with Jesus, he saw it. So do those rulers, by the way. Peter is saying, we know the one true and living God is the God who, the only one who entered our world to suffer in our world and die in our world to save people in our world. I want you to notice this as well. I've spoken a bit about how sometimes the temptation is for Christians, uh, you and I, church, the temptation is for us to, to not want to suffer, and so we just don't want to say Jesus is the only way, right? That's one temptation. Here's another one when it comes to pressure, particularly political pressure. We get political pressure come at us in Australia in different ways, or perhaps peer pressure from our friends and family. Here's another temptation, is to get dragged before, metaphorically speaking, the rulers or our friends and family and have to give a reason for the hope we have. And here's what we do. We don't give the reason. We just defend ourselves. So we end up defending me, Russ, rather than speaking about Jesus. You see, we end up defending my own integrity, myself and my own intellect. We have to defend how smart, clever I am. I've worked it out. We have to defend me and the temptation to defend ourselves. Notice this. The apostles do not defend themselves. But they give a defense of the hope they have in Jesus. They don't say, yeah, here's a reason why now I can be a jerk. And I'm going to be a jerk to you. They actually don't act that way. They act actually with humility and respect. I want you to notice this. Peter, who often is a spokesperson for the apostles at this point and in the early part of the book of Acts, Peter himself writes a whole letter about this. He writes in 1 Peter a whole letter and 2 Peter by and large too, but 1 Peter particularly to a letter to churches like Reforming Church, of that day and reforming church today, churches like you and I, he writes to us Christians, brothers and sisters, and he, and he writes to churches in all sorts of places that are dispersed. And he says, though you suffer for the gospel, this is how you do it. And it's not by being a jerk. It's not by saying, oh, the government wants me to do this, like obey the speed limit. Oh, let me show I'm a Christian, right? Let me do 110 because I'm a Christian. No. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 13 where to submit to the authorities, but so does the Apostle Peter, who says this now, who's able to actually distinguish what it means to honour God, to, sorry, fear God, and yet honour the emperor. This is Peter, right? Fisherman. He can get this, so you and I can get this. He writes in his letter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 17, honour everyone, love the brotherhood, that is the church, Fear God, honour the emperor. You're still to honour the governing authorities. You're not to be a jerk because you're a Christian. No. You see, 
Christianity, Christ changes that. First Peter chapter 3.15, he says this, he writes this, But in your hearts honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to give a defence to anyone who asks for reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with um, being a jerk and an idiot. No, that's not what he says. He says, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This is the shape of Christianity. This is our shape. See, Christians should never face peer pressure or persecution by just being painful people. But by being more polite, that we would with gentleness and respect give an answer for the hope we have in Christ. Look at verse 31. Acts chapter 5, verse 31. God exalted him, that is Jesus, at his right hand as the leader and saviour to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. This is the message of the book of Acts of the whole world. Remember Luke 24? Luke 24 verses 46 and 47 had those summaries. So Luke 24 verse 46 is a summary of Luke's gospel. Luke 24, verse 46, and he said to them, Jesus said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead. And then Luke 24, verse 47 is a summary of the book of Acts. And that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You see, this is what Peter's just said. Peter's sermon is what Jesus said will be preached throughout the book of Acts throughout Jesus' acts in the world by his Spirit through his apostles. That's the message. It's repentance, that is, turning from sin to God, turning to God from sin and receiving forgiveness. And even Peter says you get given repentance, like it's a gift, it's, it's given to you. You get given repentance, an opportunity to repent, turn from your sin, trust in Jesus, who is Lord, God and Saviour, and receive forgiveness. You see, every time we suffer, every time there's something hard comes, every time, every moment is every opportunity to speak about Jesus, to speak about the gospel. Church, do we know this? Do we know that every moment in life is actually a gospel moment? Like, I don't want to say that that's overloading because it's not. It's actually true. It's, it's whether you're playing rugby or tennis. And in the season of COVID, we're not doing much of either. I think you can play golf. Even playing golf, which I know very little about, except it's a little ball and a stick and, and you've got to get it in the hole. That's the basic idea of golf, right? Even you can actually see golf in the moments of golf has gospel moments. Every part of life has an opportunity to think on, to speak about Jesus our work life, our home life, the raising of children, the caring for our elderly parents or grandparents. Every moment in life, from golf to granddad, is a gospel opportunity. Even suffering, especially suffering. If we suffer for the name of Jesus, is that not an opportunity to speak about Jesus. But I think our temptation is this. I'm happy to speak about Jesus when I'm playing golf to my golf friends, right? My golf buddies. Happy to do that. 
But if I'm going to suffer for Jesus' name, what do we tend to do? We tend to slink away or we better not talk about Jesus anymore then. You see, if, I, if, I'm a, if my friend wants to ask about Jesus while playing golf, yeah, I'll do that. But if someone says, don't talk about Jesus anymore, what do we tend to do? Never talk about Jesus anymore. I get what it feels like to lose friends about this, okay? Reforming Church, you know this, we've said this. I have lost friends, dear friends, in Bendigo because I've spoken about Jesus. One of my high school friends, good friend, close friend, we did lots together growing up. Uh, we had a, there was a Facebook conversation where I mentioned how it's heating up for Christians in the West, in Australia, just with peer pressure, and that was too much for him, and he defriended me. We are not friends. I have lost friends because I've spoken about Jesus. And do you not think I get tempted? What's my temptation then? Don't do that again, Russ. Like, just preach at church. Don't write about it online on Facebook because people won't like it and you'll lose friends. Don't talk about it at golf. I don't play golf, but wherever it is, I socialize because people will, I'll lose friends. My uncle, once at my grandmother's 90th, called out and said and called me hallelujah. What's my temptation with my family? Not talk about Jesus. Do you think that I'm just some sort of brave person that signed up to suffer? No, I suffer and I slink back too. I feel the temptation to do so. I want to know, how am I going to respond to suffering because of Jesus' name? Look at how the opposition responds, thirdly. The opposition responds with often, and particularly not just in the book of Acts, but in our society, how do they respond with politics? Politics. Just like in our day and age, By the way, it's the same. It's politics by outrage. That's how we do politics in Australia these days, isn't it? I think it'd be refreshing, actually, if we had a political member uh, who was of the opposition or of the government who would stand up to someone who was sledging them and say, you know, I'm really thankful uh, for what you've actually said. You've brought a good conversation to the fore. um, And yes, I'm not a perfect person. I've got faults and you're right about all those things. Um, Wouldn't that be refreshing? Rather than I'd like to say the member for such and such is a drongo. Politics has become, in our country, politics by outrage. Like we, and it's not just politicians, by the way. It's you and I. Anyone who's online just expresses it. We get outraged at the slightest things. Like, like someone says something they didn't mean to say or perhaps they didn't even know they said it. And what do we do? Outrage. I'm outraged. I'm hitting my keyboard so hard. I will use upper caps and five exclamation marks. We are so outraged. Surely it is wearing us out. And we see this here too. We see this here too. Verse 33, Acts 5 verse 33. When they heard this, that is the message of the gospel that Peter just preached, they were enraged and they wanted to kill them. Yeah, that's not a good answer to, this, <laughs> to the preaching of the gospel, is it? They want to kill them. Preach gospel. Get killed. Now, of course, they're also politicians, and they know they can't kill them. Not like this. They can't use blunt objects just yet. So what do they do? Well, one of them has some sort of sense, political nous, Gamaliel, and he stands up. Now, Gamaliel is a hugely respected teacher. And you can read about him in other places. He's got some background, some history that goes way back in Israel. But 
We know he's a Pharisee. We also know from the book of Acts, in fact, from Acts chapter 22, verse 3, that Gamaliel was the teacher of the Apostle Paul. Like when Paul, Saul, was a Jewish scholar and zealot, Gamaliel was his teacher. So Gamaliel's got some street cred. He's a Pharisee. The party of the Pharisees were a smaller party, part of the whole council political system. So the Sadducees were the bigger party. But Gamaliel's a Pharisee. He stands up and he reasons. He says, hmm, just be careful. Just be slow. I know we want to kill these guys, yeah, understandably, because we hate Jesus. But he says this, remember um, Theodos, 400 people, you know, formed a bit of a zealot clan group. Well, that all dissipated, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. Remember Judas the Galilean did a similar thing? How did that work out for him? Not very well. He too died. He perished. So he says, in this case, just wait and see. Just wait and see. If it's nothing, it'll become nothing. But if God is in it, well, you'll be opposing God. Now, it sounds smart, doesn't it? It's smart politically, but it's actually sad theologically. I've read scholars that argue Gamaliel, um, you know, perhaps in history became a believer later, but there's nothing in the text that indicates this. For a believer wouldn't stand there and have fellow believers beaten. A believer would, filled with the Holy Spirit believer, would actually say, uh, I'm with them. Gamaliel doesn't do that. Even Saul, who becomes Paul, at Stephen's stoning, which we see in Acts 7, he stands there approving of it. Gamaliel seems to be approving. He's not a believer here. He's just being political. But he's a Pharisee. Remember the Pharisees, Sadducees? The Sadducees were, here's the dad joke, right? Remember this because it was like a cracking joke and you're all like on the floor of your lounge rooms laughing when I said it. But remember, uh, the Sadducees were not believers in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see. But Gamaliel, he's a Pharisee. He believes in the resurrections. This is why it's smart politically, but it's sad theologically because he's the best teacher in Israel. He's supposed to know his Old Testament. He's supposed to know biblical theology. And yet, a Pharisee who, does, a Pharisee who believes in a resurrection doesn't see who the risen Jesus is as Lord. He doesn't see that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah we've been waiting for. And so with his political savviness, his reasoning, he with the whole council decide this, let's let the apostles go, but not without firstly giving them a beating. So they'll remember it. And then they charge them not to speak about Jesus. They give them some persecution. They give them a beating, they give them a talking to. They're pressured not to speak in the name of Jesus. And here's the question. That question we started with, how will they respond to pressure in Jesus' name? Well, here's verse 41. Acts 5 verse 41, here's how they respond. Then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. They rejoice. They rejoice, they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name of Jesus. So they're charged earlier not to speak in the name of Jesus. And now they actually are rejoicing that they are counted worthy to suffer in the name of Jesus. 
And what do they do? Verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. They end up teaching biblical theology. Biblical theology is sadly what is lacking in many churches today, and Christians don't understand it, but we actually need to see it, that biblical theology is Luke 24, that the whole Bible actually points to Jesus, that Jesus is the Christ. The word Christ is the New Testament word for the Old Testament word Messiah. Jesus is the anointed one. He's the king, the Messiah. It's him. Gamaliel, even he, the greatest teacher in Israel at the time, could not see it. But these guys can see it because they have been changed by the gospel, by the Holy Spirit. And as they teach, they go from temple to house to house. This is Jesus' design for the church. That we would see the gospel taught in our groups. That we would teach biblical theology. You see, when we open the Bible in our groups, we're not just doing that because we have to. We're doing that because we get to. And we get to see Jesus. We get to see Jesus in every Bible study. And this is why we don't meet in the temple now. We, we gather in a reforming house where I'm currently, currently standing to record this. But we actually, actually get to gather in a gathered worship, we used to and will soon do, God willing, to see Jesus and to see Jesus change everything for us. We've got a phrase at Reforming Church we use a lot from our little disciples to our grown-up disciples, and that is this, the gospel changes everything. Jesus changes everything. But the gospel also brings suffering. How will we respond to pressure in Jesus' name? We are saved to suffer. See, the gospel is, it is actually unhindered. The gospel is unhindered. That's the theme of the whole book of Acts series. The gospel is unhindered. But the opposition will try. The opposition will try and hinder it. They will want to stop the spread of the gospel. And what is the choice tool of the opposition to spread, to stop the spread of the gospel? What is it? It's pressure, often leading to persecution. The choice tool of stopping the spread of the gospel is to try and kill it. And here's a heads up. If you are opposed to the gospel, you know, occasionally um, we as a church on Facebook, on Twitter, and I haven't seen anything on Instagram, but even on YouTube, not long ago, only a few uh, services back, the service just started and we got a dislike on our YouTube page. That's okay. You know, it's, that, that happens. But here's the thing. If you are a disliker of the gospel, perhaps you're watching and you, uh, someone dislikes it now. That might happen. Have a look at the bottom of YouTube and see if there's any dislikes today. Any thumbs down. But if you're opposed to the gospel and you happen to be still watching, can I just give you a heads up that's in the Bible? Every time you increase opposition to the gospel, what happens? The gospel doesn't decrease. The message of the gospel doesn't stop. It increases. You can't contain it. You actually can't contain it. It'd be like trying to hold a bucket of water in your hands. It'll spread. It'll go everywhere. The early church father, Tertullian, said this, to those who are opposing the gospel in his day and age. He said this, Kill us! 
torture us, grind us to the dust. But the more you mow us down, the more we grow. The seed is the blood of Christians. And that has been the case in every generation. Suffering here involves persecution that's physical. That's what happens in the book of Acts in chapter 5. But also, the words used that Luke writes is, it's not just they suffer the beating, they suffer, he uses words like disgrace and dishonour. And that is the kind of suffering that we face. I don't think we're going to face a physical persecution in Australia in the foreseeable future. I could be wrong, but I don't think so. But I do think that we're going to suffer disgrace and dishonour. See, we live in a culture just like that culture where we, uh, people, we live in outrage culture. And what does outrage culture want to do? Opposition wants to do things like name and shame. Put it out there. And, and how, does, how does that operate? The tools, the choice tools are this, intimidation and humiliation. It's only natural for you and I then, church, to want to avoid that. No one wants to be humiliated. No one goes, oh, I'm just, you know what? I've had my breakfast. I'm just looking forward to being humiliated today. No one wants to be humiliated. No one likes that naturally. It's not a natural reaction. It requires supernatural response. Because remember the shape of Christianity? What is the shape of Christianity in the face of intimidation and humiliation? The shape of Christianity is this. It's cruciform cruciform it's a cross are you and i willing are we willing actually willing to rejoice when we suffer in some form of societal shame for identifying with the name of christ or speaking the gospel are we willing the big push of the book of acts in chapter 5 is we need to be ready and willing to suffer for the name of jesus Jesus himself says in John 15, verse 20, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Philippians chapter 1, verse 29, the Apostle Paul writes, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, So we all want to believe in him, but also, keep reading, suffer for his sake. But how? Are we just going to like use willpower and get through it? Grit your teeth and be ready for the suffering. No, that won't work. It won't work beyond Wednesday. Might work for Monday, Tuesday, but we'll get weary of that pretty quick. I will. How can we suffer for the sake of Jesus' name? It's only by the very reason that Peter gives here in Acts chapter 5, verse 29. Verse 29, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. How? Why? How can they suffer? Why? Verse 30, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. So, so God has actually raised Jesus up. He is the Messiah. You killed him. And that message of the gospel is the reason we can suffer. Verse 31. 
God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Where witnesses, so is the Holy Spirit. This is why we suffer. It's because of the gospel. You see, the gospel doesn't just save us. It gives us the power to suffer, to suffer well. We have seen Peter respond before to pressure. And if you know Peter himself, you know that Peter went from denying Jesus at the cross, he went to denying him as even a friend, didn't even know the guy, he said three times over. We saw Peter deny him, now to say, undeniably, we are willing to suffer for Jesus' name. You who oppose the gospel, this is an opportunity for you. You who oppose the gospel, hear this, you actually oppose the very message from God himself. You actually are opposing the power of God to save. The power of God that created the world by his word is the power of God who's making a new world forever. That power, you oppose Jesus, you're opposing God himself. You're opposing the message of actual authority, And your methods that you thought of that you could use to stop the gospel, perhaps even using death, by the way, is the way in which God saves. That's the power. The the, the very thing that the, the religious rulers want to use to kill people, to stop this message getting out, is the very message of the power of God. The suffering you want to inflict upon Jesus or his people, the suffering you inflict upon Jesus, Peter says, was the same suffering that saw him take your sin, my sin upon himself to the cross to forgive us, to save us, for us to have life with God too. Church, Reforming Church, we believe in Jesus and in our suffering we become like Jesus. You see, even in our suffering, our suffering points us back to the gospel, why we're saved. Sometimes we suffer and it's inexplicable why. Suffering from being a Christian, why picking on us, picking on me? Why online? Why my friends? Why my family? It reminds me of the words of that hymn written by Horatio Spafford. We're going to sing this in a moment. Though Satan should buffet, though trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. And if it's your sin, perhaps it's you who once were opposed to the gospel, Perhaps you once, like Peter, even denied being associated with the gospel, with Jesus. Perhaps you have suffered in some way online or with your friends and family. Perhaps you've suffered in such a way that you've actually gone quiet and denied Jesus. And you're listening thinking, I feel shame for that. I love that next part of that song. Would you sing it loud with us in a moment? It goes like this. My sin, oh My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. 
Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. You see, the suffering Christ is the one who suffered and died for sinners, who once denied him, who were once ashamed. He takes their shame. He takes your sin, my sin, suffers and dies in a death that is of humiliation. And so who can oppose God who saves the world through his own humiliation and death of persecution on a cross? Who can oppose that by using methods of persecution? No one. No one. Who can oppose the one whom death cannot hold down and gives us a hope unhindered? No one. This is our God, our leader, our saviour, His name is Jesus, and we get to be associated with his name, saved in his name, even suffer for the sake of his name. What will that mean for us as a church? It means that we'll actually count it worthy to suffer. We don't always in the moment, I get that, I often find it difficult to see. But when you reflect, when you really see that we get to identify with Jesus, which means we won't stop speaking, we'll just speak some more. Yes, we'll speak with gentleness and respect. Because we even want those who want to bring suffering upon us to be saved too. It means for us as a church, we want to speak about how we have forgiveness in Jesus' name. That we want to obey Jesus as Lord. We want to speak with little disciples around the dinner table about what it means to follow Jesus. And not be ashamed. That if we get that fear at school or fear perhaps amongst our friends in social circles, we can actually say, what can they do? And what we need to do is actually speak about Jesus so they can know what it means to be saved to. Count the ways in which it means that we could count it worthy to suffer for the sake of Jesus' name, only because he suffered and died to save us. And Bendigo, and beyond Bendigo, This is for you to see too, for you to be saved too, in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Our gracious God, Saviour, thank you that you give a repentance and forgiveness of sin in Jesus' name. We pray that when we see the next time we suffer for the sake of Jesus' name, that our response would be to rejoice. It is not our natural response. It is not my natural response. And so we're asking by your Holy Spirit that it would be a supernatural response to rejoice in Jesus' name. And upon our rejoicing, we pray that people who are opposed to the gospel would see that they cannot oppose you but that you came, you sent your Son into the world to love them, to lay your life down for them, to save them. You did it for us. So we pray that we would respond by rejoicing in Jesus. We pray that that would be the shape for our little disciples of our church, for our children. We pray that it would be the shape for our teenagers We pray to be the shape for our grown-up disciples in our workplaces, in our social circles, online, 
We pray it would be our shape, the shape of Christ, knowing that he suffered and died for us. Thank you. Thank you for Jesus. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.